Well, as you're being seated, I want to welcome you and, and remind uh, many of you, today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, this season that we call and historically has been called Advent. And Advent is this time when we, it's, it's complicated, we said last week, because there's part, in part we are celebrating uh, the first coming or arrival, the first Advent of Jesus Christ. And we also look forward to his second coming, his second arrival, his second advent. And so what we've, what we've done each week in the season of Advent, yes, we need to remember. Yes, we need to reflect on. Yes, we need to celebrate the coming and the birth of Jesus Christ. But it is also a time for us to push back on this ridiculous commercialization of Christmas. And so we, we ask these questions questions, we say, are you or have you prepared room for Jesus Christ? That's the name of our Advent devotional, family devotional that we've, we've distributed for the evenings, prepare him room. But is there room, is there room in your life for all of who Jesus Christ is? And so we, we're looking at that each week. So don't, I know we're just a few days from Christmas and man, it is very exciting around our house and we've got a countdown chalkboard and everybody is excited, but don't, don't check out too soon and begin to celebrate. Let's, let's spend another Sunday morning together, one additional Sunday morning together in the scripture saying, is there room? Have you made preparation in your life for Jesus Christ? So if you would turn with me to the gospel of Matthew chapter one, we've, we've begun we began three weeks ago working our way through Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to end today in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's gospel. So let's read this. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And while we're reading this, no, this morning, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. What I've just read to you is the Christmas story from the lens of Matthew. And there are three primary characters in Matthew's Uh, Christmas story, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. There are three primary characters in the telling of this story, and they are Joseph, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. All of them, each of them, is significant for the story. And I really wish we had time uh, this morning to take each character, but we really can only explore one of those, and that is Matthew, or Joseph, rather, in Matthew's gospel I shared with Edward this week, I've had an incredibly wonderful week preparing for this. It really has been wonderful. Um, I have prayed for many of you by name. I've prayed for our church much. Um, I've prayed for Edward much. I've prayed for many of you, your families, extended families. We have a gigantic opportunity this week in many ways. And it's been a great week uh, praying and preparing. Uh, And as I've done that, where my heart and even my imagination continually are drawn to our Joseph. And the primary characteristic of Joseph in this passage 
Did you catch what that was as we read it? It's that he was a just man. He was righteous. Look with me at verse 19. At the beginning of verse 19. And her husband Joseph being a just man. This is the very first thing that we hear about Joseph. He was just. Some of your Bibles may translate it righteous or upright. He was a just man. He was a righteous man. He was an upright man. And this is not just the narrative. This is not just Matthew commenting on Joseph. This is actually Joseph's behavior. And we're going to see that this morning. This is Joseph's behavior in this passage. Joseph being just is going to show up in a few key areas. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Let's look at verse 18. Now, the the birth of Jesus, the Christ, took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Here's here's how it worked. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. It's okay. But here's how it worked. When a girl reached the age of maturity, maturity, typically between the ages of 12 and 14, she would have been betrothed, or she would have uh, had an arranged marriage. Her parents would have arranged a marriage for her. And at this point, this couple would have been betrothed. It was legally binding. This was more serious, more binding than the way we think about engagement, right? We can call off engagement if it doesn't go well. But this was a legally binding situation. And really, there were only three ways to end this engagement. The natural way to end this was by completing the betrothal, right? You fulfill... uh, you, comp- you go through the process and then you are married and you take the wife home with you. So you, you complete the betrothal, you get married. This husband and this wife, they move into the same house together. The second option is that you could die. That's a kind of a dark way to end the betrothal. But if you die in this process, the, the, the living, the, the remaining... Uh, Man or woman would be a widow or a widower. They would be considered a widow or widower if you died in this process. And the surviving uh, partner was known as such, a widow or a widower. And the, the only other option, once you got engaged, was to get a divorce. That's the only other option. And it was legal. You, could, you couldn't just break off the engagement. There was a legal process. So a a couple was engaged, was considered husband and wife, and they were, this was typically a year-long process. So you were betrothed for a year, you didn't live together. Uh, Typically, you weren't alone at any point along the way. You were always with other people, members of your family. You were never alone. It was a year-long process. Um, And the, the wife would continue to live with her parents. So When Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant, what does he know? He's not the daddy. Okay? So he hasn't been alone with her, most likely. He hasn't been with her, definitely. And it's very likely he's not been alone with her, even in the same house and on the same trail together. They didn't go off picking daisies by the pond together. They were not alone. And so he knew his natural assumption was what? That it was another man. There's someone else involved here. This is not mine. This baby is not mine. It's someone else's. So according to Jewish law, not not law like you don't like the IRS law and so you do something differently. This was the Torah. Okay? According to the Torah, Joseph had two options. He could publicly divorce her or he could privately divorce her. Right. Both were legal. Both were legal. Okay. Option one, a public divorce would mean that Joseph goes to court. There's a trial. There's a hearing. There's a public trial. And the outcome would have been a complete public disgrace for Mary because evidence is presented. Cases are made. And and Joseph was not the father And many would attribute to that they hadn't been alone. She lives in her parents' house. He's doing his thing. Evidence was presented. And so it would have been a public 
disgrace for Mary. Everyone would have known she had been unfaithful in the marriage. She had defiled the marriage bed. She was with child and it was not Joseph's. It it would have been uh, really a terrible fate because this was an economically male-centered society. And so her life depended on her attachment to a man. And so it would be very unlikely that she would be able to marry. This was a horrible fate for, for Mary. This did not go well for Mary, okay? Here's the catch. Not only in this option would Joseph retain his honor, right? He goes to court, there's a trial, and people know when Mary has a baby, that wasn't Joseph's baby, so he's an honorable man, right? He retains his honor. But also, he stands to gain in a couple other ways as well. He retains his honor, and that's, don't, don't miss that this is not insignificant in an honor-shame culture, okay? We, we don't, it's not as significant today. It was deeply significant then. This was an honor-shame culture, and so he retains his honor, and she is shamed. He's justified in the sight of all, right? But also this, by, by, by doing this, by this public divorce, he would profit economically. So he takes Mary to court. Joseph, he has impounded her dowry. There would have been a dowry given. All of her assets come into the marriage with her. All of her assets come to the marriage with her. So he impounds her dowry. He gets to keep her dowry, right? And then there's a bridal price that he most likely would have paid. See, when, when, when they reach the age of maturity, 12 to 14, this young man begins to work. He is now an adult. And the money he is saving is a bridal price, He's working hard, sweat equity in this marriage, okay? And so he's going to hold back some money that he's going to pay for this bride. And so at the public trial, he both, he, he both keeps his honor, he impounds her dowry, all of her assets that she brings into the marriage, and he would have likely recouped the bridal price. Your daughter, your daughter was disgraceful. I need my money back. So he gets his money back, right? That's financially, that's financial gain for him. Why? Because now he's an honorable man publicly and he is able to now marry again. And so he has his bridal price. He has her dowry. So he's, now he's got more assets in the bank, if you will. And he's got a bridal price that he can now take the next, to the next young, young lady. That's option one. Option two for Joseph, a private divorce. Now, in this case, Joseph, he would draw up a bill of divorce. He would, he would have written out the terms and he would call on two or three witnesses. And he would say, here's the deal. I need you to be a witness to this. And so they would come together privately and there would be no trial. And he would sign the document. And by doing this, he would, on, on one hand, he would minimize Mary's public disgrace. Right now, unless these people would go and, you know, run their mouth, which is very... It's unlikely. So now the people that know about this shameful situation, for seemingly shameful situation, is limited. There's a small circle. It's not public, right? And so he minimizes her public dishonor. And on the other hand, on the other hand, he's going to forfeit his bridal price and any claim that he might have to her dowry. So this hits him in the pocketbook, right? Now, in, in that culture, these were Joseph's only two options when he considers Mary's pregnancy. So look at what it says in verse 19. Joseph was unwilling to put Mary to shame, so he received, or resolved rather, to divorce her quietly. Of all the options, of the options in front of Joseph, he's he's got these legal options here. He chose the one that disadvantaged himself in order to advantage Mary. We have to see it that way. He had legal options, and he chose the legal option that disadvantaged himself and advantaged Mary. This is is what the Bible calls compassion. This is mercy. Compassion to God 
is righteousness. You need to hear that. Because we're going to look at what it means to be righteous and just in the life of Joseph. And compassion and mercy to God are righteousness. But that's not all there is to his righteousness. After he makes this choice, right? It tells us there he resolved to divorce her quietly. That's verse 19. Well, Joseph goes to sleep. He's got to be exhausted. Have you ever been faced? Something has shooken you. You've, you've received news that almost physically has knocked you off your feet. You, you don't know what to think. Which end is up? You are nauseous, maybe, right? I, I'm, I'm saying a lot of things that aren't in the text there. But I've received news like that before. But it does tell us that once he's resolved... It says that it uses that word in verse 9. He's resolved to divorce her quietly. It tells us that he, he goes to sleep. He, he's in the middle of this terrible situation. He's trying to figure out how to do the right thing. And he's been hurt in an unimaginable way. And he, he finally passes into sleep. And then God does this unexpected thing. He shows up right, to Joseph in a dream. Through an angel, God speaks to Joseph and tells Joseph, listen, as impossible as it is as it is to believe, Mary did not betray you, Joseph. Mary was not with another man, Joseph. Mary was not faithful, unfaithful, Joseph. She was a faithful woman. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that God has placed in Mary's womb this child. That's a crazy dream. I mean, think about that. You're in a dream and an angel of the Lord says, hey, it's okay. Your wife has been faithful. It's okay, Joseph. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. There is much to be afraid of right now. Do not be afraid. She's not been unfaithful. That child in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. It is from God himself, Joseph. The Messiah, God's own son is there. And then he commanded Joseph to do these three things. He said, don't be afraid. Joseph, don't be afraid. That was a command. And then he said, Joseph, do not divorce her. And thirdly, you need to adopt the child. That's, that's what naming Jesus would mean in effect for Joseph. Because he tells him to... Name this child. To name a child on the eighth day was how a father claimed a child as his own. The eighth day was significant. And on this day they would have named the child. And Joseph would have named this child. He says to him, you need to call him Jesus. And so on the eighth day, Joseph would have named this child Jesus. Laying claim. That's how we can say that Joseph is the father of Jesus. And we know that it's an earthly father. We know that this was a virgin. We know that conception was by the Holy Spirit. But this is how we can say Joseph was the father. And this is how we can spend 17 verses in a genealogy of Jesus Christ, right? If you read the, if you read the first 17 verses, you go, wait a minute. Joseph was, there's no blood connection there. How is this possible? Well, it's called adoption. And adoption is a significant theological thing in the Bible. And we don't have time to talk about that today. But this angel, look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the last word of the, pa- of the passage. In the face of fear, right? He's telling him to not be afraid. It's kind of like Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua, don't be afraid. Joshua, don't be afraid. Joshua, don't be afraid. It's like three times in just a, like ten verses or something. The, we get the idea that Joshua is probably afraid. We get the idea here that Joseph was most likely afraid. Right? And so he says to him, don't be afraid. He gives him these commands. And what we hear when he wakes up from his sleep is this. In the face of this fear, Joseph trusted God enough to obey him. That's the word we hear in verse 24. Joseph trusted God enough to obey him. This is, this is uh, Joseph's modus operandi. This is how we see Joseph operating in the Gospels. 
We know very little about him. But what we know about Joseph is this. Over and over and over and over we see him in just a few texts. Hearing from the Lord and obeying. We don't even hear him speak in the first two chapters of Matthew, right? There's no word from him. All we see is difficult situation faced with God's command, responded in obedience. That's what we see in the life of Joseph. There's difficulty, there's trial, there's, there's uh, suffering as it could be, and we hear a word of the Lord. He commands him in a certain way, and, and Joseph does what? He faithfully and obediently responds. That's what we see of Joseph here. Obedience is his hallmark. It's prompt. It's simple. It's unspectacular. This is spectacular for us because we're reading this, this side of the cross. This is Joseph when no one else in the known world really knows what's going on in that moment. It's unspectacular. And the angel of the Lord says, don't don't, don't be afraid. Don't divorce her. And you take that son as your very own. So Joseph, he gets up and he obeys. Obedience to God. You need to hear this from the life of Joseph. Obedience to God is righteousness. Compassion and mercy to God are righteousness. And here in Joseph's life, we see that obedience to God is righteousness. Joseph is a picture of Micah 6, 8, right? Tim read from, or uh, Carmen rather, read from Micah 6, 6 through 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is Joseph in, in what is seemingly a very complicated and very difficult situation, right? He is doing justice, he is loving kindness, and he is walking humbly with God. He is a beautiful, one writer says this, Joseph is a beautiful example of the vertical dimension of righteousness in its sensitivity to the will of God and the horizontal expression of righteousness in its sensitivity to other people. I love how that's said. Joseph is absolutely sensitive to what is going on this way and what is going on this way. And he is absolutely in the center of God's will there. He, Joseph was this man who had made the choice to know and to follow God, his law, so often. You need to know this. This, is, this cannot be a one-time thing for him. He had made the choice to know and to obey and follow God's law so often that it had become habit for him. Here, this guy, this is one of the most fundamental things in Joseph's life is that he responds in a way that that shows and tells us that his character was holy. He, the Bible says, was a just, a righteous, an upright man. It's the first thing that we hear about Joseph and we see it in his actions, not in someone's word only, but in the deed of Joseph. He was a just man. So why is this important? Right? Why look at the life of Joseph uh, on the fourth Sunday of Advent? Why, why take a look at what seems to be somewhat an, uh, of an insignificant character? Right, It's Jesus and it's the Holy Spirit and it's Mary. But I'm saying it's Jesus and the Holy Spirit and Joseph. Why is that important for us this morning? Well, it's important because righteousness pleases God. It's one of the most fundamental teachings in the Bible that God delights in your and my righteousness. It's all throughout the scriptures. Listen, it doesn't mean, okay, I've said this a couple of times over the last few weeks. It doesn't mean that you can be good enough to make up for your sins. Your deeds and your actions and your works do not provide forgiveness of sins. If you weren't here last Sunday, then listen to that. We, this child is a king that rescues. And it is only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrected body that we have the forgiveness of sin. That is the only way that anyone in this room can be pardoned, justified, set free, made right. I am not stepping away from that vital teaching of the Bible. You cannot be good enough to make up for your sins or to be forgiven. But, but you need to hear this. Obedience does not produce forgiveness. 
You need to hear that. We still need it. And that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, right? And listen, if we had time this morning, we would do that very thing in this passage. Here's Jesus, God who saves. Here's Emmanuel, God with us. There's some really fabulous, incredible, overwhelming things that are happening about justification by faith here in this passage. And it's important to learn. But this morning, I want us to listen to hear God's address through Matthew's portrait of Joseph and what he is saying about righteousness. What we see in Joseph is a righteous man, a man who pleases God through justice, compassion, and obedience. I I see it as one of Matthew's purposes in his gospel, and it's to teach us the ethics of Jesus. See, he starts in this way. He gives us an example of Micah 6, 8. He gives us this, what is, what is said and recited, what's quoted in the Old Testament, this man that is walking humbly, doing justice and loving kindness. He gives us a physical example of that. And then he's going to end his gospel in this way. He's gonna, we're going to be commanded by Christ himself, right? It's the Great Commission. Go into where? All the earth and do what? Make disciples, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what else does he say? And teaching them to do what? Obey. Obey. That's the Great Commission as well. It's not just making disciples and baptizing them. It is teaching them, teaching me, teaching you to obey all that he's commanded. This is Matthew's pattern. He is showing something in his gospel here, right? Obedience to God pleases God. He tells us that. He teaches us that. He shows us that. He doesn't emphasize belief in his gospel. Is belief critical? Yes. Is it the sermon from this text? No. The sermon from this text is that obedience to God pleases him. That is the first and the last word from Matthew's gospel. Teach us to obey Jesus, to obey God. That was his main agenda in this gospel. So let's ask the question this morning. What about you? What about me? I've had to ask myself that question all week. What about you? Are you righteous? Are you a righteous person? A righteous man or a righteous woman? Micah 6.8 is the only way to make sense of Joseph's actions in this story. What does the Lord require of you, O man, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Does it take Micah 6.8 to make sense of your actions? Let's take the righteousness of compassion this morning in Joseph's life. See, James, <coughs> pardon me, in the book of James, he says that we are to, to look into the mirror, right? He calls this a mirror. And this is nothing new to many of you, but we do a couple of things with the mirror. You can go down to 377 Marketplace and you can find an old mirror and you can look at it and say, that's a really great mirror and I need to get that. It's a relic, right? You need that in your place. Or you can look into that mirror and see who you are. And James doesn't mean for us to look at this as a relic. He means for us to look into that mirror and not walk away and forget. He means for us to look into this mirror and say, what about you, O man? Who are you? Are you righteous? The righteousness of compassion. Do we give others, do you give others kindness and compassion even when it brings disadvantage to yourself? Do you? Are there areas in your life right now where you have the choice between several right responses? Do not forget that Joseph had two legal right responses. A public or a private divorce. And Joseph modeled for us the one that disadvantaged himself and advantaged Mary. It was compassion. And what we know of him is he's a righteous man, an upright man, a just man man. Are you choosing the one that shows the most compassion and mercy to the other person? Whatever the decision that you're facing in your life is, are you choosing the one that shows the most compassion and the most mercy to the other person? What about the way 
we treat, what about the way you treat your family members? Listen, this is a week, this is a weekend where we will be with significant numbers of our family, most likely, not everyone, but most likely. How do you treat your family members? That's where we see righteousness coming out in Joseph's life. And it's, listen, I'm here to tell you it's one of the most difficult places to show compassion and kindness and mercy in my family. Anyone, I'm going to use that word, anyone can show kindness and compassion on a mission trip. We can. Husbands and wives, kindness, does that characterize the way you treat one another? Does it? Are you compassionate and merciful even when you're right and he or she is wrong? In my notes I have when she is wrong. I had to say that both ways. Is that the way we operate in our marriage? When your spouse hurts you, what comes out of you? She didn't make you say it, guys. It was already there in your heart. When you've been betrayed and mistreated, when your behavior... See, this is what the Bible would teach us, Luke 6 and in many other places, that your behavior flows out of your character, which is the fruit of your heart. Do you need to repent of unrighteousness in your own lack of compassion, kindness, and mercy this morning? Do you? Now listen, the devil is in the details, and I know that. I'm not talking about a prescription for how to handle abuse. If you are in this room, and I think I know most people in this room, but maybe I don't know this part of your life, if you are being abused, I am not talking about that. You need to talk to me, you need to talk to Edward, you need to talk to someone that can help shepherd you through this. I am not prescribing a way to handle abuse. But there are a thousand instances before abuses occur where this is applicable. If you are the abuser or the abused. I'm not talking about abuse this morning. Parents, what about how you treat your children? I'm not removed from that. Are you, am I, tender? Are we compassionate? Are we merciful? Even when they are right and we, or I'm sorry, that we're right and they are wrong. Teenagers, can it be said of you that this is how you treat your siblings? In kindness and compassion and mercy. This is not an adult-only text. Teenagers, can this be said of you in how you treat your siblings? All of us, what about how we treat our parents, right? All of us, how do we treat our parents? And to the teenagers, listen, and probably in other places of the room, I want to encourage you to learn this now. I know many of adults that do not know how to treat their children well into middle age, and so we've sophisticated the way that we dishonor our families. And now they need to repent. So I am encouraging you, To learn now how to respond to your parents in mercy and compassion and kindness. And then there's the whole area in the way Joseph handles his finances, right? It's an incredible thing here. We should learn from Joseph how to please God through compassion and obedience, no doubt, even when we're afraid and it's disadvantaging to us and to the advantage of others. But, but what about this? What about you? What, about, what kind of decisions do you make with your finances? Listen, the Bible is filled, literally filled with commands about working hard and being physically, physically responsible. I'm, I'm not talking about anything other than that. It tells us to be responsible, to work hard. In fact, if you don't work, you shouldn't have a spot at the table. So, so be physically responsible. Work hard and provide. But it is also filled with stories like this, like the life of Joseph, where we are challenged to manage our money according to God's financial plans and to be generous and kind financially, even to our detriment. That's what we see in the life of Joseph. 
I'm not putting something here that's not here. He chose the way that disadvantaged himself in that way. For so many people, the American dream is to get the most money possible. Right? I've said this here. I don't know where I heard it, so I can't give credit to the right person. But uh, they summed up the American dream this way. Uh, get all you can, can all you get, set on the can. Right? Some of you will get that later. But here, in the life of Joseph, don't miss this. What we see in his life is the Christian way of living is not only to be prudent and responsible. It is that. He had a bridal price to pay. Okay? He's fiscally responsible. It was ingrained in who they were. But also, Joseph was obedient to God when it jeopardized him. What about you? And and what about in the area of sexual behavior? See, Joseph's righteousness shows up in his remarkable sexual restraint. I know that this is church, and for some that may not be the place for that, but this is absolutely the place to address that. Joseph's righteousness showed up in his sexual restraint. We didn't mention it earlier, but the Jewish practice when it came to engagement and marriage, this couple would have been engaged. She's legally his wife. They don't live together. That means they're not in the same bed together. They're not in the same house together, right? They're considered husband and wife. They're not sleeping in the same, under the same roof. They continue to live with their own parents. Then, Mary gets pregnant. And let's notice again what God commands Joseph to do. Verse 20. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Now look at the end of verse 24. He took his wife and he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Let's, I want you to think about this first. Let's state the obvious. This whole story is built around a very simple fact. That Joseph and Mary were virgins in this story. They had never been with a man or a woman. They were sexually pure. That's a very simple thing that this whole story is built on. They practiced sexual restraint. They were teenagers. They were teenagers practicing sexual restraint. Teenagers. You displease God when you are impure outside of marriage. We need to follow the example of Mary and Joseph. We have a few college students with us. Many of them have gone home. But college students, you need to hear me say this. You can do this. You can. Teenagers, they're dispersed. You need to hear me say this. You can do this. There are people in this room that arrived to their wedding day pure. You can do this. There's more here. Verse 20, the angel tells Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So as soon as he wakes up, he takes his wife, but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son. So this means something, right? This means something. Joseph ended the engagement. He took her as his wife. What does that mean? They went downtown. They had a ceremony wherever it would happen. Now, we don't know if the public knew she was pregnant or not. That's irrelevant at this point. They have a ceremony. They are now husband and wife. They are leaving their father and their mother's home. And they are going to come together under one roof in one house. They're poor. They probably don't have multi-level housing, right? Now, there was multi-level housing at that point, but it's, it's probably one, at least one room and one bed. He's not sleeping in the, in the manger scene there. No, they're together. They're in one bed. And, and in this, night after night, get this, he took her as his wife, meaning it's legal. But he did not know her, meaning they both exercised restraint. She's with child. Now, there's a lot going on here. And if, maybe if you ask me, why didn't they? It's, she's already conceived. That's a whole. But here's, here's why I believe Mary and Joseph controlled their passions for the honor of God's Messiah. For the honor of God's Messiah. So here's the deal. All over the room, this is not a teenage single thing either. 
please do not disconnect from me because you're married. Men and women and teenagers, we must control our passions. And we can. Period. So do you. Are you pleasing God in your sexual behavior? Are you? Are you submitting and disciplining your desires according to God's plan? Is pornography a problem for you? Whether it's on a computer or in your fantasies, it is wrong. And we need to discipline ourselves with practices that would honor the Lord. This sexual ethic here of God's kingdom, it's a prominent note in this passage. We cannot escape it, particularly as it relates to Joseph. We can't escape it. This author, one author says, the fundamental, complicated, pressure-filled issues. This is the concrete, the particular, the specific reality in which Joseph's righteousness, righteous actions occur. That's where these things play out. This is day-to-day life, right? And so I would ask the question, are you pleasing God through righteous behavior in your family, with your money, and your sexual conduct? Now, if you're not, there is good news Okay, you need to hear that. So if this is landing on you very heavy and you're not walking in compassion towards people that know you the best, that hold your heart in their hand, and that is your family, there is good news. If you are not walking faithfully in your finances, you're not honoring him with that. And if you are not honoring him with your life in, as it relates sexual, in your sexuality, whether that's in your mind, on a computer screen, on your phone, or physically, there is good news. If you confess your failures to God, right? And repent. Advent is for this. And all the years for this. God's word is for this. But we are saying right now. Is there room in your life for him? And if you are not honoring the Lord in these areas. There is not room right now for Jesus Christ. And so I'm saying to you this morning. There is good news if this is you. Repent. And listen. This is not in my notes. But not one of those weenie little I'm sorry kind of things. We've, I'm not going to say we've all been there. I've been there. But some of you have been there. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, when I say repent, what I mean is that you make a specific, practical change to the way you are treating others, handling your money, and conducting yourself sexually. It's called spiritual discipline. And if you will do this, I believe Because God is faithful to his word that he will have mercy on you. He loves you so much that he sent his very only son, right? We have to know that that is true. That he loves you so much that he did this. And we looked at that last week. That he he sent him to die for your sins. That's what the passage in Matthew 1 says. So look again at God's word to Joseph through the angel. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. This has been said multiple times, but this is an important word for us too. This season of Advent, I've said, is a time of preparation, right? We are preparing room for Him. Opening our lives. This is, this is the way I've heard it said the, the most. We are opening our lives more fully than ever before to receive Christ. You are, we are leveling the mountains. And we're raising the valleys. We're making stri- a straight and clear path for Christ to fill our lives. And this involves, this involves, I believe this morning, from this text, the concrete reality of how we treat others, how we handle our money, and how we behave sexually. I want to close with this. As we imitate Joseph, right? We imitate Joseph. We repent of evil. We're practicing righteousness. I I want to close with this. It has a profound effect on how you live daily. When we imitate him, when we repent of evil and we practice righteousness, it has a profound effect on how we think of our relationship with God every single day. Whenever we sin, right? We, we, we're going through a day. I'm not saying that you will sin so many times. There's no prescription for that. But when you do sin, right? Right? 
we ask God's forgiveness, and at once, that's the scriptures, 1 John 1, 9, we ask, we confess, and he forgives us, he cleanses us of all of that unrighteousness. We know that to be true in the scriptures. But at often, right, you will find yourself, you need to hear this, often, you will find yourself walking in conscious obedience to God and God's commands so far as you understand them and how they apply to your life. When you know what God's command is on your life and you walk in faithful obedience to that consciously, right? And during these times when we are obeying God to the best of our knowledge, how should you think of God's relationship towards you? It is very important that we answer that question. How should you think about your relationship with God in those moments when you are walking in faithful obedience? Let's just say for these, in these specific areas, how we treat others, how we handle our finances, and how we are handling sexuality. When we are walking according to his word, to the extent that we know faithfully in obedience to the Lord, how should we think of God's relationship towards us? We should be encouraged. I don't want to end on a heavy note. I know that many of the things we've said this morning are very heavy, and I don't want to allow you an escape mechanism. I'm still saying you need to repent this morning, if that's you. But for those of you in this room, we don't preach enough sermons like this. Many of you in this room are walking in faithful obedience to the Lord as it relates to these specific areas. College students, teenagers, men and women all over this room are faithful in the way they treat others. I, listen, I, I get frustrated and I'm impatient. But there are many, many, many opportunities for you to be, be unfaithful in those areas. And you walk in compassion and mercy towards someone. And you are faithful with your finances. Many of you are faithfully tithing, giving alms to the poor, abundantly offering your finances because you know from whom and for they are. And many of you are walking faithfully in your sexuality. I know that to be true. And we don't preach enough sermons to say to you, you should be encouraged according to God's word. We should think that our heavenly father is actually pleased with us. The scriptures tell us that. Parents, aren't you pleased when your son, when your daughter, when they do what they're supposed to do, when they do what's right to him, aren't you pleased? And listen, I... I know that our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ loves us unconditionally. I get all that. I'm not walking away from justification by faith. But as a parent, don't you know that, Hank, when your son or your daughter does what is right, and you look at them and you say, I am pleased with you. It wasn't as though you were displeased before, right? You hated them before. No, you look into their eyes and deep in who you are, you want them to know deep in who they are that you are happy. You're pleased. You've been honored, right? And you love it, right? Sometimes I think we lean so heavy on original sin and justification by faith alone that we forget and even neglect, as one systematic theology scholar would say, that our Heavenly Father is happy. He's happy with our obedience. You need to hear that this morning. Some of you, that needs to land on you. He is happy with your obedience, Even if no one else knows, your heavenly father is happy with your obedience. And not just because he loves us in his son. He loves you in his son, okay? He does. But when you're obedient, he's pleased. Listen to some of these passages, right? First Peter 2, 5, God tells us that he takes pleasure in in the acts of obedience that we daily offer him as spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 21, God tells us that he takes pleasure in the fact that we do his will. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, God tells us that he takes pleasure that we have learned how to walk in the ways of his will. 1 John 3, 22, God tells us that he takes pleasure when we keep his commandments. Matthew 25, 21, right? On that day when Christ returns, he will, he will look over our life and say, what? What is he going to say? 
This is not a pastoral question. I need you to respond. What is he going to say in that day? Well done, King James Version, thy good and faithful servant. Well done for what? You need to answer that question. Well done for what? Not because of your belief. Belief is assumed. Okay? Well done when you resisted sexual temptation, my servant. Well done when you were faithfully sexually, my servant. Well done when you put things into practice in your life that allowed you to escape the temptation of pornography in your life, servant. Well done when you paid your tithe, my servant. Well done when you gave alms to the poor, my servant. Well done when you walked in compassion and mercy and kindness towards your siblings, my servant, towards your parents, towards your children, towards your almost unlovable neighbor, my servant. He takes pleasure in the good work that he has done in us through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He takes pleasure in our sincere desire to obey him. When my children obey, not because they're getting a reward, there is a deep sense of pleasure that is indescribable to me. And I am a father that is evil. He takes pleasure in the increasing manifestation of his own character in our lives. And when we walk in obedience in these ways, it is Jesus Christ's character being made known in your life. You are being transformed into his image. The image of the only begotten son. So at the end of the day, when you have sincerely sought to obey God, you need to revel in this. You need to revel in the joy of your father's good pleasure in your life. It will overwhelm you if you think about it for very long. So what child is this? He's a king who delights in our righteousness. Let's pray. Father, it is, it is breathtaking to imagine that you have deep pleasure in the obedience of your children. And so I pray in these moments that where we are unjust, unrighteous, we are not walking upright simply as it relates to this passage and in other areas as your Holy Spirit has prompted us, that we would repent, that we would resolve like Joseph to get up and do the right thing. Because that resolve is played out in our actions when we leave this place, not how many tears we might shed. I pray, Lord, that we would not escape from your conviction this morning. And for those, Lord, in this room, many as they be, that are walking in humbly with their Lord, that in this moment they would revel in the joy that you take in their faithful obedience to you through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in the name of